the year that this week's album was released, Drew Carey took over for Bob Barker on The Price is Right. Dick Cheney was temporarily president while GW had a colonoscopy. And yours truly graduated high school. Yes, 07 was a heady time indeed. DeYarmond and Edison are the two middle names of this week's artist. Uh, I may be having a stroke, but I think I smell patchouli. And, and what's this? How did a fair trade almond milk latte get in my hand? Well, that's weird. I anyway, this week's album was a product of mononucleosis and heartbreak, which are both gross and neither of which brought me the amount of success that it brought this week's artist. Under the moniker Bon Iver, Justin DeYarmond, Edison Vernon, and I cannot stress enough that that is his real given Christian name, brought forth his 2007 album, For Emma, Forever Ago, today on Two Dudes and Tunes. Folks, you're listening to Two Dudes and Tunes, the album review podcast where two friends review albums in podcast format. My name is Chris Robinson, and my fellow podcastman is Wood Johnson. Wood, how are you doing? Oh, man, I'm doing pretty good this week. It's, it's another Thursday night, and I'm ready to dive into this album. Yeah, man, I'm excited. This is an album that I am super familiar with, but... Uh, before we get that uh, get that going, uh, tell me a little bit about your week. It seems like there's a lot of uh, a, a big chunk of text in uh, your section of the uh, banter portion. No, I mean we last week we mentioned that you know Morgan had been bit by a rattlesnake, and so she spent the better part of Saturday back at the uh, the vet getting a second round of uh, IV fluids because she had gotten a little bit dehydrated. So. I was able to spend a lot of time in the parking lot of the vet uh, listening to this week's album while that was going on. And then on uh, Sunday, I drove to New Orleans as a part of my job and did a bunch of parts inventories out there and worked my way kind of back towards San Antonio. And during that time, uh, kind of to skip ahead to what we're listening to this week, uh, I found a new album, at least new to me. By an artist, and I'm probably going to butcher the pronunciation of her name, Sinabo Say. Uh, her album Pretend, which came out in 2015, she's a, a Swedish Swedish musician with a really strong vocal leaning to her music, and just has a really fun kind of, uh, if I had to categorize it, like electro pop soul R&B thing going. Just a really cool album. It's Pretend. And I highly recommend you give it a, a listen. Yeah, I've been looking for something interesting to listen to. I've kind of been in a, a slump. I've been listening to a lot more podcasts than music at work. So I'm going to have to check that out. That sounds real neat. Yeah. So what did you do this week, man? So this past week, I think I had mentioned it uh Megan and I went to the Hill Country and uh, spent a bunch of time in Bernie and Fredericksburg. Uh, so kind of your neck of the woods. And uh, man, it was it was a lot of fun. We kind of we partied a little too hard, I think. <laughs> uh, so uh, Friday, Friday was, you know, we got to the hotel and just kind of walked around Bernie that not not anything super exciting or spectacular happened. Uh, but. Saturday, we got our day drinking on. We went uh, to this little, like, wine and, like, charcuterie board, board like, bistro-type place. Well, I freaking God! Um, and I got to say, man, I am super envious of Europeans and the whole, like, drinking at lunchtime thing. Uh, we did that. And uh, the the problem was... Everything went well. We got our sandwiches. We got our drinks or whatever. Uh, but I think we got some food poisoning at that place uh -huh. because, yeah, we we both. And, and I think so. Here's what it was. So we go into this place and they had just opened like maybe an hour or so ago. And uh, Megan ordered 
uh, like a, a sandwich that was like vegetarian. It had like portobello mushrooms on it. And the woman behind the counter had to ask the the cook and it was just one guy, right? Small enough place where it's just one guy I had to ask him like, Hey, do we have any mushrooms left? And I kind of saw the guy like look around and he was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we do. I think his answer should have been no, <laughs> because <laughs> Megan and, and we both had a good time still, but Megan was like nauseous the rest of the day. And like, I had had a bite or two of it and I didn't feel super great either. And on top of that, you know, this was the first time that we had gotten to be out and about in a while just because of the pandemic. So we were hell bent on like hitting the shops and walking around in the sun. So uh, we kind of tired ourselves out <laughs> on vacation this weekend. Um, but yeah, it was a lot of fun. I, the, it, um, we got, I don't want to like take up too much time with this, but it kind of got worse. Do you want me to tell you like about the rest of it? Oh, go tell me, go ahead and tell me how miserable your vacation was. Okay. So, (laughs) and this sounds very first world problems. Like we really, we really did have a good time, but we had decided we were going to leave Sunday. Like, cause Megan's got to get back to work. She's a teacher. She can't take off days as easily as I can. So we got up and the first thing we did was we had coffee because there was a, a Keurig machine. So that's cup of coffee. Number one. Uh, we went to this restaurant called Little Gretel there in Bernie, which I highly recommend. It's delicious, like Western European food. But we had a couple of cups of coffee there. And then we stopped at a coffee shop for some coffee on the way out. Uh, and I got an, uh, like a cold brew, which I don't know how much cold brew you drink, but sometimes it can be like a little supercharged, mm-hmm. you know, like, uh, so I had had like five cups of coffee and then we hit the road. Well, it's, it's like the end of spring break. <laughs> and so we got to like a, a highway interchange in the middle of nowhere and, I could, I I had a gas station in my sights, but I had to pee so bad and traffic was at a standstill that I had to do the really gross thing and pee in a bottle. My God, that's disgusting. And that was a first for me because I've led a a pretty charmed and sheltered life. (laughs) Uh, But man, on top of that, like my heart was just like pounding out of my chest. Like I could not fall asleep. It was like. I, I looked at the clock. It was one in the morning and I had been just tossing and turning for a couple hours. Like <laughs> I kind of, uh, hopefully I didn't do any serious damage to my circulatory system, but um, I, that, that was my weekend was like day drinking, getting food poisoning and then having like way too much coffee and giving myself like some serious issues on the way home. Well, thankfully you made it back, man. I did. And you know what? Like, it was fun. It was all worth it. <laughs> we'd, we've been wanting to get out of, uh, get out of Lubbock for a little bit. So it was, it was actually a lot of fun in between all of that. Um, but yeah, that was it, man. Hey, you had texted me something this weekend. Uh, a, uh, I think our first email response. Yeah, that's right, Chris. Uh, Back when we started doing this podcast, we kind of solicited people to give us their feedback. And if it was interesting or pertained to anything in an episode, we would go ahead and drop it into the episode and kind of make it a little bit more audience participation based. And uh, I'm holding in my hand. Don't know if you can hear that printed out on real paper. (laughs) Love uh, the Foley work. Oh, yeah, totally. Uh, A letter that one of our listeners, uh, my wife, sent to me. Uh, after hearing our introduction episode where we talked about the fact she listens to our music or our podcast on two and a half speed. And it reads, March 19th, 2021, San Antonio, Texas. Dear Dear sir, sir, lest I should not be able to write again, I feel impelled to write lines that may fall under your eye when I shall be no more. Having died from either embarrassment from having drowned under the tide of misinformation you are sharing. Wood, my love for you is deathless. 
It seems to bind me to you with mighty cables that nothing but the omnipotent could break. And yet my love of being right comes over me like a strong wind that bears me irresistibly on with all these chains to this letter. For upon hearing the plurality of falsehoods leveled against me, I caught a case of the vapors. I had to be revived in the loving arms of my dearest mother, who knows that Apple Podcast only plays at two times speed. I pray that God and his grace forgives his grave besmirchment against my honor. Write when you can in a long letter, as I am very anxious to hear from you. Forever your chaste wife, Tiffany. P.S. Get on my podcast listening level, you peasant. Ooh, that, uh, that is a stinging rebuke uh, yeah. from your wife. <laughs> I'm kind of not surprised that the first email that we got was uh, somebody chiding us for, <laughs> for saying something churlish on the podcast. Well, we were true to our word about it. So if you have anything to say, dear listener, please send it in. We'd be more than happy to include you as well. Hey, Chris, I think it's time we talk about this week's album. You ready? Absolutely, man. Let's do it. All right, man. For Emma Forever Ago, July 8th, 2007. Uh, this is a really interesting album. I'm not going to lie. Um, there were some things that I had that kind of made it a challenge for me, but I'm interested uh, right quick, kind of what was your first experience with this album and why did it make your list? So this album was one of those like music I discovered in college type of albums. Uh, in the fall of 2011, I packed up all my stuff in San Antonio and moved to Central Christian College in McPherson, Kansas. Um, and I think I've kind of mentioned that, but I don't know if I mentioned the college by name. Uh, and I need to give a special shout out to Ryan Mackey. He used to be Father Mackey. He's now a bishop in the Anglican Church, I think. He can write us an email and scold us if we're wrong. Um, but I'm pretty positive he was the one who introduced this album to me. Uh, but beyond just that, um, one of the first conversations I ever had with my wife-to-be at the time was about Bon Iver. Uh, because what I remember happening was we were introduced. She was working at uh, the coffee shop there in this little like private Christian college. She was working at this coffee shop called The Mud Hole, <laughs> which was down in the basement. And I was... I, I really, I want to say, I remember telling her about this album and being like, Hey, have you heard of this band? And as a matter of fact, it was like one of her favorite bands still is, uh, cause she had just seen them touring their self-titled album. Uh, and so it's important to me, not only because it was like such a, a different album than what I listened to, uh, because it's very soft, kind of moody, dramatic, acoustic music. But it's also really important because it was one of the first things that Megan and I ever bonded over, you know. Uh, and so that was kind of the first introduction to that album for me was through this brand new experience. How, this was the first time you'd listened to it, right? Well, how, how did it hit you? So the first time I listened to this album the whole way through uh, was while we were waiting to find out uh, more information about Morgan being Rattlesnake Bit. So Yikes. here you are wondering, you know, not only nothing about the the cost of that vet bill, but whether or not she's going to pull through or not. And so this this album kind of set a mood <laughs> in my truck Ooh. while I was sitting there waiting. Yikes. Uh, I have been familiar with the music on this album. I I've heard the singles uh, from when they played on the radio. And I remember back in 07, 08, somewhere in there when skinny love was like the only song on the radio, it seemed like. And I remember really hating that song. Like I would, 
I would change the channel if it came on. And it seemed like it followed me. You know, I'd change the station and five minutes later it would come on on that station. And so I was always running away from it. Uh, At least if it wasn't Skinny Love, it was something similar to it. And I think it might have been Skinny Love. Megan and I were watching that show Chuck a Mm -hmm. while back. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, hey. I recognize that song and I'm, I'm sure that it was on Grey's Anatomy and like every other like yeah. big TV show at the time. Any show that did montages, it was probably, oh, yeah. it was probably on Lost. Let's not even kid ourselves. <laughs> uh, but the point being, I had never sat down and listened to the album as a whole start to finish uh, and just kind of had no preconceptions about it when I sat down to listen to it. And my first impression was I wasn't impressed at all. Uh, And we can get into that when we get a little bit further into this uh, episode. I would say that my impressions of it changed as I got a little bit more experience with it over the last week. And as I read kind of about the production process and what was involved in uh, Justin Vernon making this album. So... With that kind of said, I think the next thing on our show notes is to talk a little bit about the making of this album, which is your section. Yeah, this album has such an interesting story, interesting enough uh, and kind of eye-catching enough that I think I learned about it pretty close to listening to the record as well. You know, I was in college and all of us in the music department were talking about music so i'm sure that it came up but he wrote this uh by himself in a cabin in the woods of wisconsin so to backtrack a little bit uh justin vernon is is, is the he is bon Iver. um you know it, it's not as much of a band in the traditional sense where you think like, Oh, it's these like four or five guys. This album was all him. It's a stage name. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, rolls off the tongue a lot better than De Yarmond Edison, <laughs> which is just makes him sound insufferable. But anyway, so he was in a band. He was, his band's name was De Yarmond Edison, his two middle names. Um, and they, formed at the end of his time in college he had gone to seminary um and they wanted in an adventure basically these are all guys who had known each other in high school i think and so they moved out to raleigh north carolina and i think as it happens to a lot of us life just kind of hit him really hard you know you got to make ends meet he was working at a sandwich shop, you know, like probably a subway or something. Um, and he really felt like his life was just kind of going nowhere. He got sick. He got pneumonia that turned into mononucleosis, which I should have looked up what that is. Do you, you're the, you're the guy with the nursing background. What is mononucleosis? Really, really, really painful. Let's oh, just leave it at that. Well, <laughs> he was he was laid up for three months. So he was like bedridden, working this dead-end job. Um, and his longtime buddies in this band started arguing and the band dissolved. So uh, this album was really born out of everything falling apart for Justin Vernon. Um And I think he was working through a lot of depression and decided, you know what? I need to get out of here. I need to uh, rethink my life. You want to go home and rethink your life? I want to go home and rethink my life. So he ended his relationship with his girlfriend and drove that day, the 18-hour drive from Raleigh, North Carolina to uh, Eau Claire, Wisconsin, and just holed up in a cabin and just spent like three months of a Wisconsin winter in the cabin. And, and something that I think is just so cool is uh, a, that he stuck it out at all. You know, I would have been up there for a week and be like, well, I need to go somewhere else to get my life back together. Cause this is miserable. <laughs> Let's try Hawaii. Yeah, exactly. Hawaii, um, you know, California, 
anywhere, anywhere that doesn't get down into the negatives. Uh, but his dad had taught him how to hunt. And so he killed a couple of deer and subsisted on venison while he wrote the venison and beer. He said his dad brought him some beer and he kind of sat around and was like sort of self-pitying for a little bit. Uh, and then had the thought like I should do something. And so he got the recording equipment out of the trunk of his car and basically recorded this album. He even traded some of that venison for guitar repair, which I think is like just about the coolest thing I've heard in quite a while. Like some rock and roll musicians chuck TVs out of windows and kick holes in the walls. Justin Vernon killed a deer and traded it for some guitar maintenance. So that's kind of the background of uh, this album, which I think kind of informs the sound of it. You know, definitely. And when I first listened to this, having not read anything about Justin Vernon or his process for creating this album, the reason I was so unimpressed with it was I was thinking of it in terms of a classic studio production where you've got quite a few more people involved in the sound and the mixing and the the recording of the different instruments. And kind of my first impression of this album was it sounds like it was recorded in a living room by one guy just kind of doing whatever. And turns out it was recorded by a guy in a cabin in the woods on yeah, a laptop. That is, like, that is exactly what it was. Exactly. So all of a sudden my first impression was kind of peeled back. Like I couldn't just write it off as being a poorly produced record because a studio had done it. And I don't mm-hmm. feel to, to correct that. I don't feel that this is a poorly produced record, but I think this is one of those albums that is so homegrown and authentic that it comes across as just the purest form of somebody just throwing something down and making, making an album. Um, I still am challenged by several things from it. Um, I'm generally not a fan of the male falsetto vocal range, which I feel like he leans on despite having an amazing voice apart from that. Absolutely. Uh, I feel like male falsetto is just kind of a trick to hide a, a weak otherwise performance. And so when I was listening to this the first couple of times, I thought to myself, well, geez, at least it's only 38 minutes long. My misery is quickly over here. <laughs> it's yeah. You're not having to sit through two hours of it. Like I did with the, I'm sorry. Okay. I'm really sorry. <laughs> no, no, you don't apologize. I, I, I'm, I'm a clod. I can sit through two hours of an album, but kind of once I got past that phase of my thinking for this album, though, I really came to realize just how much of a lightning in the bottle kind of moment this is. This is a guy in a cabin in the woods running on minimal electricity, eating venison, drinking beer, and really just putting, you know, 12, 15 hours a day into writing and thinking through where he is in life and really getting deep with himself and being honest with himself. And really the imagery that kind of came to my mind as I thought through this is one of my favorite authors is Henry David Thoreau. Uh, Mm -hmm. Just a man who is legendary for his literature in the, you know, mid 1800s where he was totally focused on being an individual and, you know, kind of roughing it himself and focusing on his art, his writing Uh, while being totally isolated and essentially a hermit in the woods. And what came out is probably two or three of America's greatest contributions to literature, period, Uh, Walden and On Civil Disobedience being two of them uh, off the top of my head. And here is this guy, you know, 150, 200 years later, out in the woods in Alclair doing the same thing with music. And so I have a lot of respect for that magic in a bottle kind of moment that he was able to do here. Yeah. I think that the intensity of that experience is really, it's interesting because the music is not intense in the traditional sense of being this real loud, you know, just in the simplest terms that you and I might originally think of music as just like, Oh, if it's intense, it's got to be a lot of volume and a lot of like really driving guitars and stuff. Um, but that 
intensity is what I think stuck out to me. And I think that the, the production value is not, I mean, obviously it's not in the pristine, like clear capturing of sound, but just in that it was one guy doing just absolutely what he wanted to do. There's a lot of warm textures, you know, in a lot of ways, I think this album kind of sounds a little bit like a cozy cabin in the woods. There's a lot of, you know, Justin Vernon's layers upon layers upon layers of vocals, um, which I think that kind of thing would only really work in this setting where it's something authentic and it doesn't sound like he just cloned himself a bunch. You know, there are a lot of little like flaws and idiosyncrasies in the recording that I think just all came together to create something that was just so intense. And for me, like immediately memorable because I had never heard anything like this. Um, you know, I, I, my taste was kind of limited to a lot of the like heavy guitar oriented sixties and seventies rock. And so that kind of like one man, one vision dude in a cabin kind of trying to hash out his life really like stuck out to me and still makes this album really alluring to me. Yeah, and I feel like musically the intensity comes from just how he is able to capture the emotionality or the emotion that he's feeling in the way he's playing those instruments. So to to build on the comment of it not being a loud album, there's still a lot of feeling in the way he's able to capture his his playing of those instruments. And that Mm -hmm. feeds into the songs in a way that I think is kind of rare these days, especially with major studio albums where the focus is on delivering absolute perfection, absolutely perfect sounding, whatever it is, and doing it 10,000 times over until we get it right. Uh, I've been in some recording sessions that were just absolutely brutal because they were focusing on getting somebody in on that seventh note just right at the exact right key. And Mm -hmm. you would take it no joke 200 times before the guy finally got it right. Or they had to go walk away because he'd blown his voice out for the day. Uh, So not having that here helps feed that emotion and that intensity in a way that just kind of gets stripped away from most well-produced albums. Yeah, and, you know, there are albums on my list that are, and yours too, I'm sure, that are super produced. Some people maybe think overproduced, but I think of somebody like Steely Dan, who were renowned for having, you know, having a guitar solo comped out of the takes from like four or five different studio musicians and all put together, um, you know, uh that kind of perfection works depending on the composition. But I think the lightning in a bottle phrase is really apt because Justin Vernon was dealing with a lot of really intense feelings. I imagine I'm not him, but you know, from what he says about that time in his life, um, there's really only a couple ways you could truly hash those things out. And I think a production like this, that is, So like, I hesitate to say lo-fi because everything's captured really beautifully, but you know, that, that kind of experience really could have only happened. I think at the end of a chapter of your life like this, where you're at a crossroads, you know? Well, and I think it's important to kind of stop right where we are right here, take a pause and look at What were Justin's intentions for this album when he recorded it? One of the things I read uh, that I don't think we've mentioned so far is he recorded these thinking that they were more demos than anything else. 
he was trying to get his ideas down on paper. He was trying to get some sort of recording together to show what he was going through. And he had started playing them for friends and, you know, family members and people who were asking how he'd been doing and he'd press play on a song and let him listen to it. And they'd be like, oh, you need to release this. This needs to be out as it is right here. And a couple of the first tracks he actually released to the internet just as, you know, tunes for people to listen to who were going through similar things. So his goal when he went into that cabin wasn't, I'm going to go create an album and I'm going to self-produce and self-publish this album that only has three other musicians on two of the tracks. It's just going to be all me and I'm going to make something amazing. It was him genuinely going into a, a studio space or, you know, the cabin to create something based on what he was feeling. And it wasn't focused on being the greatest thing ever made. And I got to mm-hmm. be honest, when I look at something, some of the things that I've created with kind of that mindset, they fall really far from where this fell. Um, this is way better uh, than anything Same. I've ever done. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I was actually trying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's, that's the thing you'll, you'll hear musicians. I've experienced this. Um, specifically within the context of trying to record an improvised solo uh, over something. A lot of times it's so, it's probably the most frustrating thing about being a musician is there are a lot of times where that first take is as good as it's going to get. And you can apply all the theoretical content uh, concepts. You can, you know, draw ideas out of a hat. You can construct the hell out of a thing and it is not going to be as good as that first take. Now that's not always the case. You know, a lot of great works are edited and structured. There's a lot of, you know, pre-production quote unquote. Um, But I think the important thing is to recognize when something is as good as it's going to be And especially if it's like the first run through, like as was the case for him, he came out of this cabin with these songs and it may not have been his, his conscious intention to have constructed this album, but he came out of there with something very close to being done. I, he went to like a different city and had some like brass tracks and I think some drums and stuff laid down, uh, but boy, it really lightning in a bottle is the way I would characterize this because it it came together spectacularly, and it's and it's worth noting that he he has said his his problems, physical and emotional, did not just end after he left the cabin and completed this album. Uh, so I think that it it just, it takes a lot of time to consciously process what you may have already processed through writing a song Mm -hmm. or, you know, a piece of prose or whatever. Yeah. Just saying your problems doesn't fix them. You've still got to process them. Oh man. If just saying your problems (laughs) fixed them, I would just be perfect. I would be a perfect person. So let's let's switch gears a little bit here and let's talk a little bit about the lyrics of this album. Mm-hmm. What what were your so, takeaways? So uh, as I was listening a little bit more consciously to this album this week, I realized that I don't know what a lot of the lyrics are. He committed one of my personal seven sins of music is some of his lyrics are unintelligible just by dint of his delivery or their production. And I think in this album, for me anyway, it's a little bit more forgivable. But I found myself looking up the lyrics and really enjoying his particular brand of songwriting. Um, we just came off, you know, a couple of weeks ago listening to Bob Dylan, who has these really long phrases really long stanzas whereas justin vernon's imagery is i think just as powerful uh in the song flume 
the the album's opener he has a lot of imagery about um using the color maroon or red uh he mentions uh like uh sky is womb and she's the moon uh leaving rope burns reddish rouge you know and when you think about uh the context of writing this album going through a lot of like heartbreak and a lot of like kind of heartrending things uh, that kind of simple, like, not simple, but, you know, it's, it is not verbose. It's a little obtuse, but it, it goes a long way to describing kind of the pain of this point in his life using just colors that call to mind, like blood and wounds and you know, womb, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so that, that sort of off kilter brand of songwriting really appeals to me, even if sometimes it's hard to understand what he's saying. You know, I think of it a lot in terms of impressionist painters. Nobody is looking at a Monet searching for hard lines and, you know, really easy to comprehend shapes when you step back and look at the whole thing, it kind of gives you a feeling and an understanding of where he's at at the time. That's something that I think is really a, a mark in this album's favor is his songwriting. For me, when I think about the lyrics of this album, uh, he commits one of my seven deadly sins, which is in direct contrast to yours. And that is the use of vocal doubling. Uh, I am not a fan of hearing the same person's voice seven, eight, nine, 25 times doubled. And I thought of you listening to this because I remember very specifically having this conversation with you <laughs> low these many years ago. You don't like hearing a choir of the same guy over and over again. Well, and it, with the idea of something being produced for dissemination, if something really means that much to you, find 10 or 12 people who actually can sing and bring them in to actually back you up and give your album just that much more of a polished feel, that much more delivery. Lyrically, I agree with you. They're beautiful lyrics, but they are hard to understand mm -hmm. in his falsetto. And so part of me wishes that, all right, key down the guitar a little bit, come down just a little bit where your vocal range actually is and record this with your actual voice. Cause he's got a phenomenal voice outside of the falsetto mm -hmm. range. And I think this album would have had a lot more hit if he would have re-recorded those background vocals with other people in his same range and recorded it more in his range where I didn't have to go read the liner notes. And that's, not to say that I didn't like this album. Like I did enjoy this album despite that fact. But one of the things that has just always bugged me has been hearing people who self-produce their own albums and make themselves their own choir. It just comes across as cheap, I guess is the word. Yeah. And I think that's a thing that I think in a way, probably some of it comes down to taste uh, because obviously you don't like it. And I, that's not an unusual thing. I have, I have heard that opinion from other people. Um, but for me, that was some of the charm of it. And I think that's just an aspect of this album that you and I differ in. But I, I can definitely understand that because it gets done poorly a lot. Well, you know. to, to kind of finalize that thought, though, that sin, while it is one of my seven deadly music sins yeah. is forgivable when I remember that this was a guy recording in a cabin and he had no intention of releasing this originally. Mm -hmm. And it was after so many people told him it's great that he said, okay, I'll release it. And honestly, I would have told him not to release it and he would have missed out on a double platinum album if he had listened to me. So I'm the one who's obviously wrong and I can <laughs> admit that. Yeah, I, I do think just to, to provide a, a foil to my like to kind of agree with you a little bit. If you look at the music of Queen and the Beatles specifically, granted, that's a super high bar, right? Like 
for listeners, my hand is up above my head a good like foot and a half. I got long arms. That is a high bar. But I do just to like put the foil out there. There is a lot of value in getting with your friends and singing harmonies together around a microphone. Uh, but I, I also do agree with you. I think if, if he had taken your advice, you know, you and Justin <laughs> hanging out, chatting, I think he might have missed out a little bit. I'll be honest. He seems like the kind of guy I would love to hang out with. I would eat venison and drink beer with this guy in front of a fire pit anytime. Oh, same. I mean, I don't know much about who he is as a person, but I love me some venison. So <laughs> if somebody's going to bring venison and beer, I will chow down. Well, we obviously have opinions about this album, but let's hear what the critics had to say uh, before we get into our actual reviews. Uh, I did the honor of digging up the Metacritic review for this album, and I was blown away when I saw that this was an 88 out of 100. That is a phenomenal Metacritic score. It's it's popular. And granted, I'm coming from like the niche background of being in a little private Christian college. But you want to talk about artists that got overplayed over like coffee house speakers and in people's dorm rooms and in like the music hall and everywhere. It does not surprise me one bit that it has 88 out of 100 because everybody I knew was listening to this and loving it. Well, and the reason for that, I think, is the whole going back to the individualist kind of mindset that this album had, where one guy was able to create something that people loved. And so you want to talk about inspiring an entire generation of musicians, especially kids in college who are trying to find their own way, find make their own path. Here's a guy who was able to go do it with relatively little in the way of equipment or technical ability, if you will. And that's got to serve as inspiration. And that's probably why it got played and loved by so many people, because that's what they aspire to. Yeah, this album definitely struck me as the kind of thing that has been copied a bunch. I think I have definitely heard Bon Iver clones you know, ad nauseum in the indie music sphere, but it, it was very popular with the indie folks. Pitchfork, who has given a lot of our like quote unquote old fogey music kind of low marks, gave this album an 8.1 out of 10. Um, Stephen M. Oh boy, this guy's last name, Dusner. Mm -hmm. It's a doozy of a name. Uh, it seems like you have a tenuous grasp on the English language in general. Uh, Stephen M. Dusner praised Vernon's soulful performance and described the record as a ruminative collection of songs full of natural imagery and acoustic strums. The sound of a man left alone with his memories and a guitar. And Rolling Stone gave it a 3.5 out of 5 which is interesting given its heritage. Rob Sheffield wrote that it was quite a quiet marvel, praising Vernon's light touch with zero interest in narrative or confessional lyrics. Yeah, that I, I, that remark stuck out to me um, because a few people kind of similarly described it as like not as substantive in terms of a narrative um, or even being super confessional, our boy Robert Criscow uh, stated that the album ultimately had little to say about shared aloneness, comparing, comparing Vernon unfavorably to Robert Creeley in writing that Vernon's solitary meditations lose definition faster than an angel's breath on a January morn. And I kind of wonder how much of those two reviewers kind of disconnect with the narrative just has to do with being in a different generation, not to like just point the finger and go, Oh, you're just old. You don't get it. But you know, I think there were probably a lot of people who connected with the narrative of the album in some way. Um, Obviously a lot of people connected with the narrative of this album in some way, because it was such a success. Yeah, financially. And, and I, I think about my life um, 
when this album came into my life, I was at a similar point, certainly not as low because thank goodness I did not have mononucleosis, but I was at a point when I went to central where I, you know, like everybody does, I had tried some things and failed at them. Um, I had auditioned for the UNT music program and basically been told like, no way, dude, sorry. Um, you know, I had made some poor choices romantically as we all do. Um, and I, I thought it was interesting that despite not knowing the lyrics on a very literal level, this was an album that connected with me at a time where I was facing some similar questions of purpose and identity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's one of the things that makes music so fascinating is that for me, it connected right away. But for some of these reviewers, they looked at it and went like, well, this is unsubstantial. I don't get it. Yeah. I think there's a lot to be said for the generation gap. When I look at Justin Vernon, uh, he's only six years older than me, seven years older than you. So at the time that he was releasing this album, we were entering into a phase in a lot of cases that he was just exiting out of. And so it really had a chance to really connect with us in a way that I probably missed out on since I didn't just hear this album until this week. But for people who in 2007, 2008, when this was all over the place, uh, it, it hit people in our generation at a time when they were primed and ready for it. Yeah, it, it, it really, the generation gap is, is funny. I was thinking about another band that I got into at this time that hasn't had quite the staying power of, uh, Bonavera for me, um, this band fleet foxes. And I've heard specific criticisms leveled at it by David Crosby from Crosby stills and Nash. Cause David Crosby has a Twitter and that dude is salty <laughs> and he's always taking pot shots at contemporary bands Stay who were in my lawn. Yeah. He really, he really is sitting on the lawn of Crosby stills and Nash shaking his fist at people who are inspired by his music, you know? Um, so I, I don't want to, I don't want to turn this into like, shaking a fist at old people because they're just going to shake a fist right back at us. Uh, but there definitely was a disconnect in uh, the criticism. I mean, obviously Rolling Stones or the Rolling Stone, Robert Criscow, uh contrast their review with Pitchfork, who just gave it glowing reviews, especially considering how harsh Pitchfork gets an 8.1, like they were doing backflips down the hall. Exactly. Well, I think that does it with the reviews for the common press. What did you think about this album, Chris? To remind our audience, we use a rating system of one to six guitar strings. One string being, eh, he probably should have stayed home and not done this. And six strings being, you know what? You should record more albums in that cabin, bro. Yeah, one string is, I wish you'd been eaten by a bear in that cabin. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so I didn't, I didn't go into a ton of detail, uh, about this album because it was spread over so many different memories. This album will always stick with me. I listen to music on shuffle at work a lot because I'm working and I don't have time to like stop and fuss with, you know, what do I want to listen to next? And so occasionally I am just blindsided by one of these songs on shuffle. Um, I get transported immediately back to my time at Central Christian College in McPherson, Kansas. Uh, I think of orange incandescent streetlights at midnight. I think of walking Megan to her dorm in the absolute cold of a December on the plains. I think of sipping coffee at a coffee shop because we're at a Christian college, so we can't drink and there's literally nothing else to do, but drink coffee. Um, so how do you, how do you criticize something like that? 
you know, how do you, how do you level criticisms at something that occupies such an important time in your life? Uh, you know, it reminds me of a time that I was the happiest I had ever been and the most scared I had ever been that something that good was going to fall apart, that I was going to mess it up. Um, you know, I don't know. I don't know how you do. Uh, if I had to pick one thing about it that I didn't like, it would just be, uh, you know, the deadly sin of some of the lyrics being a little unintelligible. Um, but I don't think improving that production aspect would have helped anything. Um, this album is perfectly itself, which is something I said about Michael Jackson, except for this album I feel like is for me and is something that I connected with. Uh, and so for being such a beautiful formative part of my life, I have to give it five out of six strings. What about you? Where does your review come down on? So this album was really hard for me to objectively review this week with kind of all the emotional stuff we had going on with our dog. And my first impression was not favorable at all. Uh, I was pretty sure this was going to be my first one string review, which, oh. which would have been brutal. That conversation oh, that would have been, been amazing. <laughs> Thanks for taking a dump all over my like <laughs> first years of marriage. Well, you know, uh, <laughs> as some friends are wont to do, apparently. Hey, it's uh, okay. But I have to be honest, when I really started listening to this album, when I read the lyrics, when I learned about uh, Justin Vernon going out into the woods and the emotional turmoil he was going through personally, and the fact that this was just a whole bunch of demo album music that he was planning on doing something else with before he ended up re releasing it independently, my opinion of it started to warm and I started feeling much more friendly towards what was on this album and the content of it and the heart that had made it, where he was coming from as a person. I feel like this album is pure, albeit flawed in a lot of ways, as we've mentioned before. And in my subjective experience, it still deserves credit for that purity and for that heart. The idea that this album came out in uh, 2007 and was first released to vinyl and helped spur a rebirth of first pressings of vinyl for new albums coming out and that it sold more than 100,000 copies on vinyl in its first year is a credit to that industry that I am very passionate about and can't discount uh, the fact that he did that. He sold more than a million copies of this album, all said and done. It went double platinum uh, and was a huge critical success for him. And as a person who likes to see himself as a strong individual rights, individual liberty kind of person, when I look at a guy who had the wherewithal to actually go do something himself in an industry that is so bureaucratic, top-heavy, and industry-focused, here's just this guy who went into a cabin and recorded on his laptop and made magic in a bottle. He captured it. He released it. He used social media and YouTube and all the different platforms to get it out there and then was able to turn that into something way bigger than the record producers ever would have imagined. No record producer would have touched this album, but he released it and he was able to make huge success for himself and his family because of it. And I get that spirit. I love that. And because of that, and because the music is genuinely good, despite the vocal flaws that I feel in it, I'm giving this album four out of five strings, which is a hey. lot better than the one string I wanted to give it last <laughs> Thursday night. Man, he and, pulled he pulled an extra three strings out of well, thin air. Well, and the true rating of how much I enjoyed listening to this album at the end of the day is whether or not I decided to buy the album on vinyl and it showed up today on vinyl. So he got my $17. So he's a winner Heck in my yes. mind. Hey. 
Man, I want to stand up and cheer. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) So that's it. There has to be a favorite and least favorite track, Chris. What was your favorite and least favorite? So my favorite was uh, regarding stacks, I think is what, that's what RE is abbreviating, right? Regarding. Most of the time, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it'll probably earn me some scorn from the flannel clad demographic, but I don't care. Um, it's, it's a track that actually I've heard father Mackey cover at one of those coffee shops I was telling you about. And I don't know, that track just exemplifies the like really lush, cozy acoustic guitar tones. I love Vernon's like his like cadences in that song are really interesting mm-hmm. to me His like kind of drifting melodies. I know you're not a huge fan of falsetto, but I think when it's done well, I really love it. Um, and it also has one of my favorite stanzas of lyrics in the whole album. Uh, there's a black crow sitting across from me. His legs, his wiry legs are crossed. He is dangling my keys. He even fakes a toss, whatever could it be that has brought me to this loss. Um, so that that track always, I get excited for the end of this album because it's at the very end. And it's just my favorite song. What about you? Did you have a favorite song on this album? So for me, my favorite track on this song by a long shot is Creature Fear. I just, it worked across the board for me and it was easy to forgive the vocals because I really connected with the lyrics of it. And just musically, that song is just the whole package. Like it works across the board. So Mm -hmm. I really liked it. So what was your least favorite track? Man, so I'm worried I'm going to get myself in trouble because I think I say this about almost every album that I picked, (laughs) which makes me a bad podcaster. I couldn't find one. There's not that much fat on this bone for me to like say like, oh, I didn't like that. So I I really couldn't. Uh, If I if you like put a gun to my head and said pick now, I might pick uh, the track team just because it was an instrumental that probably could have gone some more interesting places, but you know, it's kind of hard to nitpick something like this because it was such a specific vision that not that he had from the onset, but you know, like we've talked about, it all came together, but you know, if I had to pick one track to live without, it'd be team. What about you? Did you have a least favorite? So for me, it was the nitpick of just the falsetto, falsetto and the the vocal doubling in the self choir that kind of burned me. And so mm-hmm. I don't really have a least favorite track, but if I had to pick one that said, you know what, this doesn't really work for me. It actually is team. Uh, this is a 30 minute, 38 minute album. And with a 38 minute album, no matter what you cut, like that's too much in my estimation. Team's a minute 57 long, and it really doesn't do anything for the content of the album. So I would agree with that. Yeah. Well, we did it. It's been another week, another conversation that I really enjoyed. Uh, But before we scamper off to our respective cabins to hunt venison and fend off bears, um, we need to know what we're going to be doing next week. So why don't we ascend the hill where the oracle sits underneath a tree or by a babbling brook or whatever it is oracle sit by or under and find out what we're doing next week all right here we go number seven from my list chris is 1994's third rock from the sun by joe diffie which is probably the most radio country album you will ever listen to. And it is my favorite album of all time, no matter what. In the words of Emperor Cusco, bring it on. Yes. Well, that's it, man. What do we got to say? All right, folks, thank you so much for listening. If you have been enjoying our show, please rate it and review it. You know, we might read your review or comment on air as we did this week. 
Yeah. And if you want to get in touch with us, shoot us an email at two dudes and tunes at gmail.com. And don't forget to hit us up on Instagram or Facebook. Tell us what you thought of for Emma forever ago. And don't forget to tune in next Wednesday where we will listen to Joe Diffie yelling about aliens and junior shooting shotguns at whatever. It's great. Trust me. And you will be a pickup man by the end of the week. We'll see you next Wednesday.